Take a Bible, notes, you can follow along. 1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 6. The Bible says, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Our focus on Wednesday nights this fall is going to be on the phrase in verse 7, where Paul tells Timothy to train himself for godliness. And essentially, we are going to spend 12 Wednesday nights together in this room talking about that one phrase. We're not going to talk about every other question that may come up from the the verses around it. We're just going to talk about this idea of what does it mean to train yourself for godliness? How does a person do that? And more importantly, why should we do that? And we're going to work our way through lots of different passages in the Bible as we try to make sense of this. Now, as we're talking on Wednesday nights about training for godliness, there are two possible mistakes that we might make when it comes to the issue of training for godliness. The first possible mistake is what we call legalism. Legalism would be the mindset that we want to train for godliness so that God will love us, so that we can earn our way with God. And that is not what we're talking about on Wednesday nights. We're not trying to earn our way with God. We're not trying to earn God's love or His grace or His mercy or His favor. The other mistake, which I think is much more common in churches in the United States of America, is not to think that godliness is all that important in any way, shape, or form, and not to do any training in that direction. And that would be what we would call just spiritual laziness, just a spiritual apathy, that we don't care about what godliness is and we don't care about pursuing it in our lives. What we want people to understand as a church, not just on these Wednesday nights, but as a church, is that God's grace comes to us before we clean ourselves up. God is not just sitting around waiting for us to get our spiritual act together, and then He's going to give us His grace. God's grace comes first, and when God's grace is poured into a person's life and someone puts their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ... God's grace does not leave us as we were, but He begins a process of change and transformation in our lives, and we have a part to play in that, which is the idea of training for godliness. So I want to start off with just a a thought about athletic training, because Paul mentions athletic training in this passage. I'll be honest with you, I don't know much about athletic training. And that may or may not surprise you. I don't know a whole lot about athletic training. I do know that when I was in high school, I injured my knee several times just playing pickup basketball games, pickup football games, and eventually went to the doctor, and the doctor said, you've just torn everything to pieces, and we're going to have to do surgery and put it all back together. And so I had a reconstructive knee surgery, which means on the other side of that surgery, you have to do rehab. 
And so there I was, about 17 years old, going to this rehab facility. And I, I remember the first step in that rehab process was just getting on the bike. And it was one of those bikes with the fan on it. So it would go around, and it was obnoxiously loud. And the more you rode, the more you got fanned. And I think they kept it hot in there to give you some motivation for fanning yourself. So I'm riding, and I'm riding. And I remember one day, early on in my rehab, a woman came in to the rehab facility. And I'm going to be honest with you, I was 17, I thought she was ancient, really old. She was probably about how old I am now, truth be told, because when you're 17, you look at people and everybody looks really old and ancient, so she was probably 40s, 50s, and to some of you, you think, oh, it's just a kid, but when you're 17, you look at a person like that and you think, this lady is really old. And I'm going to be honest with you, she looked kind of decrepit. Okay, she did not look great. And in she came, and she was very chatty. She started talking to people around the rehab facility. Everyone could hear. And she started telling everybody how she used to be a bodybuilder. Used to compete in bodybuilding competitions. And she was talking about how this wasn't that long ago. It was just a matter of months ago. She was participating in bodybuilding competitions. And I'm listening to this, and my writing is slowing so I can hear over the fan bike. And I'm thinking... <laughs> This lady is nuts. What in the world? Now, this was before you could just take your cell phone out and show people pictures. So, apparently, she felt like people didn't believe her. She went out to her car. She came back in with a, a book of photographs, printed photographs. And they were of her. And they were just within the calendar year. They were not that old of photographs. And there she was, bronzed up, tanned up, fit and toned, and she looked really good. And this had been less than a calendar year since she had a terrible injury, and she quit working out, and she got off her diet, and she didn't have a spray tan on anymore. And you looked at her, and you thought, she looks kind of rough. And if you know anything about physical fitness, you know how quickly that can happen. You can work and work and work and diet and diet and diet and you lose three pounds and you feel moderately better and then you go have one cup of ice cream and you gain 10 pounds. And you think, what in the world? Well, this lady had just fallen off the health wagon completely. There's a warning about how quickly your physical health can deteriorate. And Paul brings up physical training, bodily training in this passage and he says, look, Bodily training is of some value. It's not worthless. It's not nothing. There's some value in not having ice cream with every meal, getting out and riding the bike, or walking in the neighborhood, or playing with your kids or your grandkids. Bodily training is of some value, but he says godliness is of value in every way, for it holds promise for the present life, and also for the life to come. Don't think that godliness is just something that you need or you'll be able to use when you get to heaven and you're in the presence of God. In the biblical mindset, godliness is something that is valuable and beneficial to you now. It holds promise in this life and in the life to come. So the immediate question we need to deal with tonight is, the series is called Training for Godliness. What is godliness? How would we define 
godliness. And the best way that I know how to define godliness for you is to pull a quote from a book by a guy named Jerry Bridges. The book is called Respectable Sins. You can borrow this book out of our library if both of the copies aren't taken. You can find it on Amazon. It's one of the most helpful, convicting, gospel-centered books that I've ever read. And in the book, Bridges offers a definition that has always stuck with me. Not of godliness, but of ungodliness. And so I just want to share that definition with you. Ungodliness may be defined as living one's everyday life with little or no thought of God or of God's will or of God's glory or of one's dependence on God. You can readily see then that someone can lead a respectable life and still be ungodly in the sense that God is essentially irrelevant in his or her life. And in this opening chapter, he's actually comparing and contrasting ungodliness with unrighteousness. And he talks about how unrighteousness is this blatant, flagrant violation. It's a transgression of God's commandments. But ungodliness can often look very, what we would call, respectable. It can even look what you might describe as churchy. But you just live your everyday life with little to no thought or God. You come to church on Sunday morning. You come on Wednesday nights. Look at you. Congratulations. Twice in a week. You spend a grand total of one hour out of your whole week in this room. But what if the rest of your life is lived with little or no thought of God or of what His will is or of seeking His glory or of your dependence on Him? That's ungodliness. So if you want to think about what godliness is, train yourself for godliness, you just take that definition and you just sort of turn everything backwards. And I don't have it on the screen, but we can work through it and we could say godliness may be defined as living your life thinking about God. You think about Him and you think about what His will is for your life and you have a desire to seek His glory in your life and you're acknowledging throughout your day, throughout your week, throughout your you're living that you are dependent on Him. That would be godliness. So what we're going to do on Wednesday nights is a 12-week training regimen. Luckily for you, there are no stationary bikes with fans involved in this training regimen. You have to show up. I'll have the air conditioner on for you. You can always count on the air conditioner to be on in this room. And we're going to do 12 weeks thinking about how do we actually train for godliness? What areas of our life might be impacted by training for godliness? And here's the 12. Tonight we're going to talk about purity. And in the weeks ahead, friendship, prayer, worship, integrity, the tongue, uh, work, perseverance, church, leadership, giving, and witness. You may look at that list and say, some of those don't really apply to me. I promise you, they all apply to all of you. And you may say, <laughs> not that one. I promise you, they all apply to all of you. We're going to think on Wednesday nights about how do we train for godliness. Week one, I want to make an acknowledgement. Corey and I, in preparing this series, have been helped by two books. And if you're a reading kind of person and you like book recommendations, you might want to check one or both of these out. Uh, it's by a husband and a wife, Kent Hughes and Barbara Hughes. And one is called Disciplines of a Godly Man, and the other one is called Disciplines of a Godly Woman. And they're very helpful books. They sort of sparked the idea of this series and thinking about how do we train 
for godliness. The one caution or caveat I would give you on these particular books is that the focus of these two books is how do you train for godliness? How do you do it? And we're going to talk on Wednesday nights, and our college kids are going to talk, and our youth are going to talk about how we train for godliness. Each night, we're going to talk about that. Tonight, how do we train towards purity? We also want you to think about why. Why should we be training for godliness? And we're going to build up to the how each week. The how will come at the end, and we're going to talk to you about the why. And really, our framework for thinking about why we should train ourselves for godliness is the doctrine of the Trinity and the good news of the gospel. And so on Wednesday nights, we're going to work through each of these areas of godliness. We're going to think about the character of God. We're going to recognize our sin. We're going to talk about Jesus and how he lived these things perfectly. We're going to talk about how the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives. We're going to sing the doxology every Wednesday night this fall. We're going to sing about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit and how they're at work in our lives to help us train for godliness. So let's jump in and talk about purity, thinking about the character of God. The Bible emphasizes the absolute, the transcendent, the uncomparable holiness of God. It's the most basic foundational thing about God's character that you need to understand if you want to understand who God is. It's the idea that He is holy, is the only attribute of God in the Bible raised to the third degree. He is loving, He is wrathful, He is righteous, He is just, He is kind, He is patient, but He is only described as holy, holy, holy. Once in Isaiah 6, which we read earlier, and again in Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. Once in the Old Testament, once in the New Testament, the holiness of God is raised to this third degree. It's the Bible's way of saying to you that God is transcendent in His holiness. This is the central thing that you need to know about His character. The idea of holiness involves separation, and the separation that is involved is built into who God is as the creator, and it's built into God's complete moral purity as contrasted with our lack of moral purity. And so there's a definition of holiness that I came across this last week. Lots of people make a stab at this, a run at it. This came off the Gospel Coalition, an article by Richard Lentz. He says, the holiness of God refers to the absolute moral purity of God and also the absolute moral distance That's the idea of separation, absolute moral distance between God and His human creatures. The core idea behind holiness is absolute moral purity. God is not only perfectly good, He is the very source and standard of goodness. Now, you can see with the dots, I've taken some of that out. You can go chase it down on your own if you want to read the whole article. What he's saying is important. He's saying that fundamentally, as the Creator, God is separated from His creatures. He's unique and in a class all by Himself. And because he is absolutely morally pure, his holiness sets him apart from all of his creatures who aren't morally pure. And we'll get to our sin here in just a minute. But I think the ideas of purity and distance or separation are helpful. Uh, Also, under the character of God, the Bible relates God's purity 
to his strong aversion to sin. His strong aversion to sin. If you look aversion up in the dictionary, it's defined as abhorrence, hatred, and revulsion. If you have an aversion to a thing, you abhor it, you hate it, and you're revolted by it. I have a, a strong aversion to ketchup. I don't like thinking about ketchup. I don't like talking about it right now. I've worked in two restaurants. By far the worst thing that I ever had to do in a restaurant was touch a plate that had ketchup on the plate. Just, it just turns me on the inside. One time I was on a mission trip in Canada. And I was eating at a table with the one and only Mark Dawson. And Mark Dawson, he's hanging his head in shame in the back of the room right now. He knows what I'm about to say. There we were, me and Mark at this little bitty table. I think it was a sandwich shop, a place that we bought a sandwich with French fries. And Mark was there, and he went for the ketchup. And I thought, I'm a big boy. I can handle this. It's fine. I I don't have to move to the other table. I can stay right here. Nothing's going to happen. And he started shaking that ketchup thing, and nothing came out. And he started shaking a little bit harder, and nothing came out. And he gave it this big shake and a big squeeze, and ketchup went all over the country of Canada, everywhere. (laughs) And up to that point in my life, I'm not sure if I believed in miracles, but I experienced a miracle on that day. Because I'm telling you that ketchup went Everywhere on the table, on the floor, on Mark, everywhere, not one drop got on me. And I'm telling you, when the ketchup came flying out, my heart was beating fast immediately. And I thought, this is it. This is where I die. They bury me in Canada. It's all over. And I looked around and I thought, I'm not hit. I'm safe. I have a a strong aversion, okay? That's not even close. It's not even comparable to God in his holiness, in his absolute moral purity, his strong aversion, abhorrence, hatred, revulsion towards our sin and our impurity. So if you look at Habakkuk chapter 1 in verse 13, the prophet says to God, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? I don't intend to, to sort out everything that Habakkuk was saying to God in the situation and the circumstance. I just want you to see the connection between God in his purity, God who has pure eyes, not wanting to look on sin. And what the the prophet's saying here, he's not saying that there's God in the corner covering his eyes like he just can't bear it. And he's not saying that God's willfully unaware of our sin. And he's just saying, oh, I can't bear to look. I, I can't see it. Maybe he's peeking through his fingers. No, God sees our sin. And the prophet is wrestling with this question of you and your holiness and your purity. You can't just look on sin and do nothing. That's what Habakkuk is wrestling with. Because you are morally opposed to sin and all forms of impurity. You abhor it. 
You have an aversion to it. You hate it. You're revolted by it. And it seems like, God, you're standing by and doing nothing in the particular situation that the prophet found himself in. So, God has a strong aversion towards our sin. That's the character of God, and it brings us to our sin. Uh, Human beings are not pure before God. I think that goes without saying. I'll have you turn to Proverbs 20. And as you turn to Proverbs 20, I'll talk to you about these verses in Job. I gave you a few verses in Job where Eliphaz and Bildad are talking to Job. Job's suffering. He's lost all sorts of things. And they're trying to console him. They're trying to correct him. And there's a number of places where Job's friends remind Job that no one, no one is pure before God. No one is pure before God. Now, as you read through Job, this gets tricky because Job chapter 1 makes it clear that Job was an upright man. He feared the Lord. He loved the Lord. And his suffering was not any kind of punishment directed toward any kind of sin that he had committed in his life. And so in Job's circumstance and his suffering, he keeps chirping back saying, I don't think I did anything to deserve this. I don't think I've done anything wrong. I don't think I'm in the wrong here. And he wasn't. His friends lacked tact, and they didn't have a lot of sympathy, and they probably should have held off on some of the things that they said. Some of the things they said were downright wrong, but they were right, even though they weren't great friends, they were right to remind Job, Job, nobody's pure before God. Nobody's spotless or faultless before God. And they remind him that a number of times. Proverbs chapter 20 verse 9 is a rhetorical question. Who can say I have made my heart pure and I am clean from my sin? And the way the question is written in Hebrew, the obvious answer is no one can say that. You understand it's not a real question. It's not looking for a show of hands. It's not expecting one of you to say, well, I think I can say that. The question is written in such a way where we would say in English, You can't say that, can you? No, you can't say that. You know how to lead a child in a question to the right answer. In the Hebrew language, the Greek language, the English language has ways of doing that with wording, with tenses, with inflection, with tone. And the verse is saying there's not a person who can claim, rightly claim, that they are pure before God. Moving on, idolatry and sin are described as a number of things, impurity, abominations, uncleanness, and filth. These are not the most flattering words to describe us, but they're Bible words. God is holy, holy, holy. We are impure, abominable, unclean, and filthy. You can find this in Zechariah 3 where the high priest is described as being clothed in filthy garments. And there's Satan accusing him, pointing out the truth to God that he's filthy. Look at the high priest, the one who's going to represent the people. He's completely filthy. He's he's wearing these filthy clothes that represent his impurity on a moral uh, scale or a moral standard before God. You can look uh, at the verse here in Isaiah chapter 64. I'll just read that verse since we're close in Proverbs. Isaiah 64 verse 6 says, we have all become like one who is unclean in our Righteous deeds, all our righteous deeds, are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Again, that's not very flattering. 
but it's the biblical perspective on what we think of as our righteous deeds. We think we have these good things to bring before God to earn some sort of favor with Him. And the Bible says when God looks at those things from the standpoint of absolute moral perfection and purity, holiness, 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 all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, a dirty garment. One more thought about sin. Impurity disqualifies us from heaven. And unrepentant impurity is evidence of the judgment of God. These are straight out of the New Testament. And I'd like you to read these with me because I want you to see that this is not just angry preacher talk. This is not just hellfire and brimstone kind of stuff. This is just what the New Testament says about impurity. So Galatians 5 Beginning in verse 19, Paul says, The works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality. Look at the second one on the list. Impurity. Sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. It's not a comprehensive list. It's a representative list. That's not the whole list. That's just some of the stuff that you could put on the list. I warned you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Flip over to the right. You can look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5. Paul says to the church right down the road in Ephesus, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance of the kingdom of Christ and God. And there, right in the middle of that list, again, is impurity. Romans chapter 1, I'll leave that one to you to sort out for yourself, but Paul says that there comes a time in certain situations in certain lives where God gives people over to their sin, and one of the evidences that that has happened in a person's life is flagrant, bold, unrepentant impurity, amongst other things that you might diagnose in their life. So it disqualifies us from heaven, our impurity, and it's evidence of the judgment of God. Now let's talk about some good news. That's the bad news. Let's talk about the good news of Jesus. Jesus lived a life of perfect purity and obedience and righteousness. Psalm 24 has a question posed by David, and the question is very simple. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can actually stand in the presence of the Lord, Yahweh? Who is qualified or capable of existing in the presence of the Holy One? And if you think very long about that question, you understand that David is not that person. Your pastor is not that person. And you are not that person. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one who can ascend the hill of the Lord and stand in the presence of holiness. Because according to the book of Hebrews, he was made like us in every respect and he was tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin, without stain, without impurity. This is what theologians call the active obedience of Jesus. And you need to understand that while we often focus on the cross 
and Jesus suffering on the cross as the thing that saved us, if Jesus had not lived a pure life, a perfect life, a righteous life, he would not have been able to die as a sacrifice for our sins on the cross. It's absolutely essential that he live a life of perfect obedience, perfect purity. And the Bible says that Jesus did that. The gospel tells us that Jesus took our impurity that we might receive his righteousness. He took our impurity so that we might receive his righteousness. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For his sake, excuse me, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You translate all of those pronouns and you understand that what Paul's saying is at the cross, the Father imputed our sin, our impurity to the Son who had none of it, who was spotless. He was like a lamb without blemish or spot, perfect in his righteousness, perfect in his purity, completely holy. Our sin was imputed imputed to him, and he suffered, and he died for our sin. You can read about that prophecy in Isaiah 52 and 53, the most clear cross prophecy in all of the Old Testament, fulfilled when Jesus died, when he was made sin for us, so that in Jesus, we, impure people, could be made the righteousness of God. Our impurity placed on him so that in turn, we could be made pure. That's the good news of the gospel. You need to understand that before you set off to train in righteousness and train in godliness and train in purity. You need to understand that God is holy and you aren't. And only Jesus is. And the only way that you can be brought back into a relationship with the holy God is by putting your faith in the perfect, finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when a person does that, God gives you the gift of the Holy Spirit. So we'll think about the Holy Spirit quickly tonight. The Bible speaks about the gift of the, this is the most obvious blank you'll ever fill in, Holy Spirit. And I'm making you write that word for emphasis. He's described, he's called the Holy Spirit. Reminding us that the triune God is at work in believers for holiness and purity. What is true of the character of God from all eternity past and what was lived out perfectly by the Lord Jesus Christ, true of the Father, lived out by the Son, is being worked into our lives through the person of the Holy Spirit. I watched a video this last week. Somebody shared it with me on social media. It was so ridiculous. I don't even want to tell you any of the details because I don't want you to try to find it is a very popular pastor of an unbelievably large church talking about the Holy Spirit and talking about the most ridiculous things that they thought the Holy Spirit was doing and would do in the lives of God's people. Just absolutely blasphemous, ridiculous, silly, stupid, foolish things. This may seem like the most elementary idea. But believe it or not, the Holy Spirit actually works to make God's people 
holy. Donnie, say that again. You got it? The Holy Spirit, if you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, how would you know that? How, how would you be able to tell? Would you look for somebody who's uncontrollably laughing? Would you look for miracles? Would you look for people screaming and being wild? Would you look, I mean, what would you look for? Maybe if you want to know if a person is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you should look and see, are they growing in holiness? Not are they morally perfect. Not are they earning their way with God. That's not what we're talking about. We're just saying, is the Holy Spirit at work in a person's life? When he's at work, he's helping a person grow in holiness. Makes sense. He's the Holy Spirit. So, that's the why when you think about purity. Let's talk about the how. Training for purity. Five quick thoughts. Number one, believers are called to actively pursue purity and holiness. There are churches you can attend in this town, in this town, lots of them, who will look you in the eyeball and say to you that holiness is a nice thing, but it's not that big a deal. Because what really matters is you want to go to heaven when you die. And right now, holiness is a take it or leave it kind of thing. There are plenty of churches here in the very edge of the Bible Belt. I think we're still in the Bible Belt. We're on the edge. There are plenty of churches that have redefined biblical ethics to come up with an idea of holiness that is basically taking the Bible and turning it upside down. Everything the Bible says, you just flip it upside down, and that's their idea of holiness. There are churches in this town that will look you in the eye and they will say to you, all that matters is that you pray a prayer, you repeat after me, you get dunked, you do the thing, whatever. And if you do that, don't worry about the rest of your life. What happens, it's not that big a deal. We're just going to celebrate the fact that you, quote, got saved and you're going to go to heaven when you die. There's no talk about holiness. And what the New Testament says is, believers are actually called to pursue purity and holiness. Now, you're, I'm saying that to you with everything else in the background that I've said tonight. We're not talking about earning your way to heaven. We're not saying believers are people who are holy enough to get into heaven on their own works. That's not what we're saying. We're saying that people who have put their faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, those people are called to pursue purity and holiness in their life. So I just want you to read these verses with me. Take your Bible. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. First Thessalonians 4, beginning in verse 3. Paul says to the church in Thessalonica, this is the will of God. Have you ever wondered what God's will is for your life? Probably. Here it is. This is it. For the rest of your life, you don't have to pray about God, what's your will in my life. Because this is the answer. This is the will of God. Your sanctification. Literally your growth in holiness. Your pursuit of purity. That you may abstain from sexual immorality and that each one of you know how to control his body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who don't know God. 
Let no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. The Lord is an avenger in all these things. We told you beforehand. We solemnly warned you. God has not called us for what? He's not called us for impurity. He's called us in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives his what spirit? His Holy Spirit to you. Flip over to the right. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12, verse 12. We're thinking about active pursuit. Verse 12, chapter 12. Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. That's the imagery of physical training, right? That's your high school coach yelling at you. Let's go. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. We're back in physical therapy. Verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You have to strive for it. It's not just going to happen. You have to strive for it. You have to pursue it. Flip over to the right. 1 Peter chapter 1. The verse we read just a few Sundays ago. First Peter chapter 1, verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's grace. Grace is coming to you through the Lord Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. One more verse, 1 John chapter 3. First John 3, 3. Everyone who thus hopes in Him, everyone who hopes in God and His saving promises fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you hope in God, everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies Himself as he is pure. It's the same logic of 1 Peter. You're called to actively pursue it. Look, I had lunch with a friend today. We talked about the idea that all you have to do to drift away from God, to drift towards unbelief, to drift towards sin, all you have to do to drift in those directions is nothing. Just don't do anything and you'll drift away from God towards sin, towards unbelief. The call on your life is to pursue holiness and purity. It's not just going to happen on its own. You have to be intentional about it. You have to pursue it. You have to seek it. Believers are called to this. Number two, we can pursue purity by memorizing Scripture. That should sound familiar if you've been here on Sunday mornings. Psalm 19, not 119, but 19 is a whole list of things that describe the Word of God, and one of them is that it's pure. The Word of God is pure. Why is it pure? Because it comes from God who's pure, perfect in His holiness. His Word is holy. His Word is pure. Psalm 119, verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your Word. We've talked about this recently. We will continue to talk about it on Sunday mornings this fall. The idea that 
Hiding God's word in our heart, memorizing his word, keeps us from sin and helps us to pursue purity. Number three, we can pursue purity by being faithful in prayer. Faithful in prayer. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. Paul says to Timothy, Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Run away from youthful, sinful passions. Pursue, run towards righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from what kind of heart? A pure heart. How do you run away from youthful passions? How do you pursue righteousness and faith and love and peace? Well, one of the things you do is you call on the Lord, you pray, you talk to God with a pure heart. Prayer is part of how we train to the end of purity. We talked earlier, just to kind of bring this idea full circle, we talked about ungodliness, living your life as if God didn't exist, not giving any thought to Him or His will or His glory or your dependence on Him, just sort of checking a box in a room on a Sunday or a Wednesday and then going about your daily business as if He really didn't matter or make all that much difference at all? Is there any evidence in a person's life stronger that they are ungodly than that they don't talk to God? They just treat Him as if He didn't exist, as if He wasn't there. They might come in this room and sing all the songs. They might fill out all the blanks. If you live your life and you don't ever talk to Him, you don't ever acknowledge Him, you don't ever interact with Him, that's ungodliness. So we're training for godliness. We're training for purity. We call on Him with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Number four, pursue purity by cultivating our thought life. Our thought life. Philippians 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think. Think about those things. Impurities, right in the middle of that list. What are you thinking about? Do you control your thinking or does your thinking simply control you? This one's a hard one. Pursuing purity by cultivating our thought life. I think it's hard for two reasons. It's hard, number one, because we're bombarded with impurity everywhere you turn. From people, from media, it's just everywhere. And so you're constantly having these inputs that are not pure. You have to fight those things. But you know why else? Another reason that this is hard, this idea of pursuing purity by cultivating your thought life, is that no one else knows if you do it or not. No one in this room will ever know if you really do it or not. I'll never know for sure. There might be signs. If you are or you aren't, but I'll never really know because I don't, I don't have access to your thoughts. You understand God has access to your thoughts. God knows what you are thinking about. 
And you can be a very respectful person and fill your mind and think about all sorts of ridiculous things. That's why Paul is saying to the church in Philippi, look, this is what you need to think about. Truth, honor, things that are just, things that are pure, things that are lovely, things that are commendable, things that are excellent, things that are worthy of praise. That's the stuff that you need to think about. You have to control your thought life. Lastly, pursue purity by living with an awareness of God. An awareness of God. So maybe homework, you can look at Genesis 39 and Psalm 51. Genesis 39 is the story of Joseph, who'd been sold into slavery in Egypt, and he finds himself in Potiphar's house, and Potiphar's wife makes advances on him and uh, is trying to seduce him and trying to drag him in an impure direction. And Joseph, at one point, says to this woman, I can't do this thing because I don't want to sin against God. He had every reason externally to think that God had abandoned him with what had happened with his brothers and his family and the slavery and all the rest of it. Yet he lived with an awareness of God, so much so that when he's fighting sin and he's fighting for purity, he says, I can't do this thing because to do it would be sin, not just against her, not just against his master, but against God. David said the same thing after he sinned, Psalm 51, when he confessed his sin and he's repenting of his sin, he goes to the great lengths of saying, Against you, God, and you only have I sinned. He'd sinned against Bathsheba. He'd sinned against his own family. He'd sinned against the nation. He'd sinned against Uriah. He'd sinned against the army. He'd sinned against the people sending messages back and forth. He'd sinned against all kinds of people. But he understood that at the top of that list, the most serious issue was not just sinning against other people, but that he had sinned against God. Just two examples of people who understood that God was at the center of their lives, whether it seemed like it from their circumstances, whether other people were hurt or not hurt, their understanding of God's presence in their life was reflected in the way that they talked about sin and obedience. Look, life is busy. Life is busy. They tell me when you retire, it gets busier. Life is busy. There's always something to do. And it's easy. I'm telling you, it's easy to show up in this room, even twice a week, and to get out of this room and to get busy and to be godless. I don't mean you're going to go out and smoke crack as soon as you get off the church property. <laughs> Nobody's talking about that. I'm just saying, you know and I know, it's easy to leave this room and to say, I got things to do. I got a lot that's got to happen this week. You get busy with stuff. And you look up, and it's Friday morning, and you think, I haven't thought two thoughts about God since Wednesday night. But I'm not angry with Him. I haven't become an atheist. I'm just a godless person. I can go about my life as if He did not exist. We're training for godliness. That involves training for purity. God, we stop tonight. And uh, we're thankful for Paul's charge to Timothy to train himself for godliness.
And we want to do that. We want to understand who you are. We want to see our sin for what it is. And we want to recognize the life and the death and the resurrection of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to thank you for your Holy Spirit, the gift of your Spirit, who is at work in us for our sanctification, for our growth in holiness, our pursuit of purity. And we want to be serious about training for godliness. And tonight we're thinking about training for holiness and for purity. Lord, we pray that these things would be impactful in our life. And Lord, we especially pray for our college kids right beside us tonight and for the youth upstairs. And we pray that you would fill our church with young people who are serious about following Jesus, believing the gospel, and training for godliness. And God, we pray that you would fill our church with a bunch of adults who can set an example for what that looks like, for why it's important and how we do it. Lord, we pray that your word would be powerful in our lives this semester, not just when we're in this room on Wednesday nights, but when we leave this room and when we go to bed and when we wake up and when we're in the car and when we're at work, we want to be godly people. We want to live with thoughts about you and your will and your glory and our dependence on you. And so we pray that you would make these things true of us and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.